We will be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon, and so if you did not get uh, one of the little cups with a wafer in it, raise your hand nice and high where the deacons can get those to you. So uh, we've got one here in the front, a couple in the back back here. So just keep your hand up if you didn't get one. There's several right here, actually, one over there. Just keep your hand up, and they'll see you, and they'll find you. So uh, just wave at them. They're moving. Here they go. Now there they are. All right, put your hands back up again. All right, here they come. All right. We're studying through the book of John, and while a lot of churches will take this opportunity to focus strictly on the resurrection story, I typically, since we teach through books of the Bible, and speaking of what's unique to Grace's culture, that's one thing that's unique to our culture here at the church, is we teach through books of the Bible, passages of the Bible. And so we're in the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, the entire story is about Jesus. In fact, the entire Bible is about Jesus. The entire Bible points toward the resurrection. And so we don't really have to go out of our way to talk about the Gospel because it's in every page of the Bible. But we're working through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, we don't have to guess what the purpose of this book is because it's clearly stated at the end uh, in chapter 20 where it says, it's been written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. So Jesus came to give us life. And if you're here today for the first time in a while, or maybe you haven't been to church in a while, and you're here and you wonder, like, how does Jesus give you life? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we know that Jesus gives us eternal life, and eternal life isn't just something that starts in, uh, when we die. Eternal life starts immediately when we put our faith in Christ. And, and what eternal life means, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden all your problems go away, and it doesn't mean that all of a sudden that life gets easy. Life is hard, all right? Life is very, very difficult. And we think, because maybe our mindsets could be, we live in a, in a nation that has so much that life would be easier, but unfortunately, the, the problems just come about from different angles and different places. And so life is hard, and a, a world that's not operating the way that God originally intended for it to operate because of sin that entered the world, as a result, there's brokenness, there's hurt, there's loss, there's pain, there's death. And these things bring very much anxiety and difficult into, difficulty into our lives. Well, there's wars, as we know. There's so many things that try to take our attention away from what really matters, not only in eternity, but for now. And Jesus said, here's the life that Jesus offers. He says that he will yoke up with us, or we'll yoke up with him, and that we together walk through this life. And that yoke is the idea of a plowing illustration where two cattle will be harnessed together. So Jesus says, you're not going through this alone. In fact, I'm carrying the majority of the weight. Your, light, your load will be light and easy. And so Jesus is there with us through whatever we go through. And that doesn't minimize the pain and the struggles at all. But it does give us hope and it gives us the strength to know that Jesus is there and He's gone before us. And so that's why we're studying the book of John. Because we want to understand what life is about on the terms that Christ offers for us. And how that we come into His story, not vice versa... He doesn't come into our story at salvation. We come into His story at salvation. 
And so the Gospel of John is a great place to learn about the life of Christ and how we're invited into that story. So that's where we're going to be at today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 8. It'll be on the screen. Uh, There's also an app, if you've already downloaded it, that you can look at the Scripture there. Let's pray, and we'll get into this passage of Scripture. Father God, I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And God, I pray that today that those who have been hurt by religion, those who have been frustrated by never feeling they can measure up, those who find themselves under the burden and the cares of of life in this world, and God, they feel like they're smothering. God, I pray today that they will see that life is truly found in you. This is not just Easter talk. It's everyday life talk because it's real and it's true that you are with us and you'll never leave us or forsake us. And I thank you that we've come to know that reality and we celebrate that reality today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Gospel of John is full of historical facts. And this is important before we dive in because intellectually there's things we need to know in our mind. Okay, uh, sometimes people like to take Scripture and spiritualize Scripture, okay, and then and think, okay, what does that mean? And they put meanings that weren't meant to be there into the Scripture. Well, Scripture was written from a historical point of view for a man, a God-man, a man like no other man who walked on this earth in the first century, and today we celebrate a literal Jesus Christ who lived on this earth, who died on a cross violently, I might add, and who was executed but rose again on the third day. I want to know about his life if that's what happened and what he did and he walked on this earth. And so the first question I'm going to ask and what our text is going to ask today is, why was Jesus so violently executed? Why, would, why did people want to kill him in the first place? What did he do? You may have heard that Jesus was just a nice guy. Why would they kill a nice guy? Well, from God's perspective, Jesus died from, for our redemption, all right? He died for our redemption. But let's think of it from a human standpoint. The players, the people, the, those who were instrumental in making this happen, believe it or not, the people that were behind it were the religious people of the day. Let me say that again. The religious people of the day. The people who were in church worshiping. Jesus was hated and despised by the religious leaders of his day. And as we've tracked through this book of John, we've seen this hatred just simmering over these last few chapters. And in chapter 7, the chapter we just finished, it's literally boiling over at this point to the point where they tell the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus, to take him, to arrest him. Well, interestingly enough, these guards, when they go to get Jesus, they come back empty-handed, and the religious leaders ask, Why did you not bring him back? Why did you not arrest him? And the answer that the officers gave in verse 46 of chapter 7, no one ever spoke like this man. They saw something special and unique about Jesus. And these spiritual leaders of the day responded, have you been deceived also? Have any of our authorities, these religious people, the people who are supposed to be speaking from God in verse 48 of chapter 7, they said, has any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in this Jesus guy? Well, let's put some historical truth here in in this because it's important to understand. The authorities at this time would have been something called the Great Sanhedrin, which would be very much like our Supreme Court, 
but the, the great Sanhedrin was made up of the religious leaders of Israel, 70 men plus a high priest. And these people were the decision makers for the Jewish people as best as they could under the rule of the Roman Empire who ruled the known world at that point. And so they want to know, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And they, and they respond, is anyone, the re- religious leaders wanted to go, no, is there anybody on the religious team, so to speak, that, that's for this Jesus? All right, they're trying to say, why would you not do this? Who gave you the authority not to arrest Jesus? Well, there was one guy, actually. Verse 50 of chapter 7, there was a guy named Nicodemus. And he's a familiar name in Scripture because in chapter 3, he's the guy that went to Jesus by night asking questions. He was part of this religious leadership. He was part of this Sanhedrin group, the ruling people. And so verse 50 of chapter 7 says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, back in chapter 3, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So this is around September of, or October of the year, and what Nicodemus does, it appears, is to buy Jesus six more months, all right? Now, from God's timetable, we've talked about God as it's all planned out. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He understands the future. He knows he's going to the cross. A lot of liberal pe- preachers and people will say, well, Jesus didn't know his demise. Certainly he did. He predicted it many, many times. But Nicodemus, from a human standpoint, buys Jesus six more months till he's crucified during Passover, September or October. And what's pretty amazing about this is the fact that God uses people, just like you and I, to fulfill his grand, incredible will. And sometimes we can get lost in that, and we can just forget how significant our lives are in this grand story that God has invited us to be a part of, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer that he's invited you into his story. Now, most of our lives feel very mundane, don't they? They feel very average, very normal. But Nicodemus shows us the incredible impact that one can make if they're willing to be bold. In fact, Nicodemus was balked. He was made fun of by his peers for standing up for Jesus there. But what he did was he allowed Jesus to continue to minister. So they were like, arrest him, get him. Six more months, God's timetable because of Nicodemus. So God uses people just like you and just like me to bring about his plan and his purposes. So by chapter 10 in this book, we're going to see the religious leaders set a plan in motion to kill Jesus, to take him out. But that plan has to get the Romans involved in it because the Jewish people, although they had the ability to rule themselves again at some level, they were not permitted to execute. They could not execute people. That was reserved for the Roman authorities. So they needed to get the Romans on board. And so here in chapter 8, we see they begin to try to figure out and scheme how to make that happen. So uh, we're going to start actually in verse 53 of chapter 7 because there's one little verse there that leads into chapter 8. Verse 53 says, they went to each to their own house. So at the end of the conflict in chapter 7, if you've been here last week, at the end of this conflict, the, the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles ended. They went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives because Jesus didn't have a home. Scripture tells us he didn't have a place to lay his head. He's sleeping. He's camping out. He's, he's on the ground, right? He goes to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning, he came, Jesus came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
And so because the Feast of the Tabernacles had just concluded, there were still lots and lots of people, visitors in Jerusalem for this event. And Jesus is the teacher of the day, okay? We, we may miss that, that the fact that first century, when Jesus came on the scene and began to teach, he was very, very popular. In fact, crowds followed him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They were observing his miracles. They were taking in all of these things that he was doing, his healings. And the crowds were growing larger and larger. And this was a big threat to the religious leaders of the day. They began to despise him even more so. But in Jesus' early ministry, he's very selective, and some would say maybe evasive, to who he told what? Some people he would reveal himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior. Other people he would be less open about it because, again, he's on God's timetable. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, he said enough for them to be to the point where they're ready to get rid of him regardless of the, to- of the cost to them. They were ready to go and get Jesus. They hated him, despised him that much. So in verse 3, what begins to happen Believe it or not, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people, they brought, or maybe they drug is a better word, drugged this woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. Look at their desperation to get Jesus and their hatred for Jesus. They attempt to trap him, and they do it in this brutal and vicious manner by interrupting his teaching and bringing this woman who's got to be humiliated regardless of what she's doing in front of the crowd. Verse 4, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? You see, according to them, the guilt of this woman was indisputable. She had been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus doesn't challenge that claim. So it probably is true. This is probably what happened. But they suspected, and if you've been following with us or know anything about the life of Jesus, they suspected that Jesus would tell this woman that her sins would be forgiven, and that would mean that he was ignoring God's commands from the law of Moses. So they're trapping him here. They're attempting to trap him. But there's problems with this little kangaroo court they have going on. The law required that both guilty parties be stoned, not just the woman. And so Jesus, his challengers are saying she was called to the act, but all right, if you catch her in the act, there's got to be a man there. The same people who witnessed this should have observed the man as well, but there's no mention of this guy. So Jesus knows there's more to this story than what we're seeing happen here, right? This, this little confrontation and dragging this woman. There's more going on here than just wanting to ascertain what the law says and figure out what the law, and if Jesus agrees with the law. What's going on? Verse 6, the narrator John makes it clear. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Some charge to bring against him. What, what are they talking about here? So if God had truly sent Jesus, as Jesus claimed, and he was there, as they thought, to restore Israel and it's the nation's devotion and their fidelity to God's law, then he must insist that they keep 
the law, keep the biblical command to stone this person who was caught in the very act of adultery. And so really they're asking him, Jesus, what is your attitude toward the law of Moses? If you're really from God, you're going to support the law of Moses. You're going to enforce the law of Moses. But as I said earlier, what did I say? I said that the Jewish people were not given the right to execute. That was only for the Romans to do. And so you see what they're doing. They're creating this trap for Jesus. If Jesus says, yes, follow God's law, this would bring him into conflict with the Roman order. And the Jewish authorities could appeal to the Romans to arrest this guy. He's causing him trouble. He's going against your law. But if he refuses to affirm God's law, his credibility would be questioned in front of the people. So this dilemma they presented was designed either to accuse him of breaking the law of Moses, which called for the execution, or the Roman law, which prohibited executions for such matters. So if he attempted to evade the issue, it would look like he was condoning the woman's sin, saying it was okay, and if he stood up against her, then that would be going against the Romans if he said, enforce the law. So how's Jesus going to respond? What's he going to say? Interestingly enough, he doesn't say anything. Look at verse 6, the end of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That's an interesting response, right? Your question, you're put to a test, all of a sudden you just bend down and you start riding into the dirt. Imagine that scene. This woman's there in front, the religious leaders, the power players in Judaism, they're pressing Jesus. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? And he kneels down and he begins to write in the dirt on the ground. He's ignoring them. Look at verse 7. But they continue to ask. And as they continue to ask, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What's that about? Well, what it's definitely not about, Jesus is not asking that only the sinless people, only the sinless men among there to go and be the one that stones her because there's nobody there who is sinless except for Jesus Christ. He was exposing this whole confrontation, this whole scene, for the sham that it was. And these so-called religious leaders, sadly, were using this woman for their diabolic purposes. Shameful. These religious leaders are not interested in obedience to God's law at all. Nor are they committed to justice at all. They hate Jesus, and due to this rage, they want to bring Him down. And they're hypocritical, they're calloused, and they have no concept of God's grace at all. You know, I think sometimes in culture, even today, people try to paint Jesus as this rebellious, hippie-type guy who was all love and, and no law. Look, nothing could be further from the truth at all. If you know your Bible, if you read the Bible and you studied the Bible, Jesus never one time broke God's law, ever. Now, there were many things that the religious leaders had added to the law. They're what was called their oral traditions. That those things, Jesus, he had no regard for those. He would not keep those. Those were the rules of men. He always obeyed God's law. Why did he obey God's law? Because he was the perfect sacrifice. And not only did Jesus obey God's law, but he pointed to even a higher standard. On the Sermon on the Mount, 
He pointed to the fact that you could externally obey every law, but if your heart, your mind was in the wrong place, if it was sinning, then you were still in violation of God's law. And you see the Pharisees and the religious leaders, these Sanhedrin people, they were so good at making the show and appearing like they kept all the laws. They did all the stuff in front of people to be seen by people, but their hearts were extremely wicked. And Jesus exposed that. He pointed out the law speaks to that as well. He reveals that everyone is guilty before God. There's none righteous. No, not one. And so the religious leaders made this show, but Jesus is the only person to perfectly keep the law of God, and therefore He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus begins to destroy this mockery of justice that's going on here. First, why? The guilty man, he's nowhere to be found. There's problems here. This is not working the way it should. And Jewish law required the witnesses in any case of capital punishment to participate in that execution. Therefore, if you want to bring charges, you've got to be throwing the stone at her. All right? That's the way it worked in their culture. That's going to be a problem. We're going to see. Look at verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So he says, hey, with the, the one without sin, throw the first stone. Then he bends down and starts writing again. What's he doing? What's he writing? Well, that's an answer that every Bible scholar and Bible student would love to have, specifically what Jesus was writing here. In fact, back in the 4th century, this historian named Jerome believed Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy that was given in Jeremiah 17, 13, which said, All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. So he believed that he was writing things about their sin as well. And in fact, Greek manuscripts in the 9th century kind of support that by some commentary on it saying that the sins of each person were revealed. And so there's really firm evidence, it seems, that Jesus... What he did was, when he maybe bent down the first time and began to write, he began to write down the, name, the sins that people were committing. And then he stood up, and they said, he said, if you have no sin, throw the first stone. And then he reaches down, and he begins to write names next to those sins. We got Levi over there. He's taking bribes. How did he know that? We got Matthew over there. He's trying to act righteous, but he's got a mistress. He's got something happening that y'all don't know about. Joel over there. Joel pretends to be all righteous, but he's not giving his tithe. He pretends like he's giving his tithe. He's not giving his tithe. He's stealing from God. And so he goes down the line, and he exposes the hypocrisy of these men. Look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The fact that they went away in such an orderly manner just shows you that God or Jesus wrote down their names, put their sin next to it, one by one, knew who was the oldest, went down one by one. The most esteemed elder, gone. The next one down the line, the next one down the line, to the youngest man there. They all left. And Jesus is standing before them with the woman. Verse 9, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, verse 10, where are they? Has no one condemned you? You know, some people have tried to make this passage show that Jesus is soft on sin, but nothing could be further from the truth. While these men did leave their piles of stones there and they left, and the woman, the woman was left there, Jesus didn't condone her sin. Far from it. Look what he says in verse 10. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where are your accusers? Is anyone going to accuse you? She says, verse 11, No one, Lord. There were no witnesses left for her crime. But it was a crime. But no witnesses. And Moses' law called for due process. Even if it was enforceable, it called for due process. And so Jesus is saying, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you in regards to the legal sense of this matter. But he adds to it, go now and sin no more. Jesus is saying that his grace and mercy never give a free pass to sins like adultery. It doesn't give you a pass to do what you want to do. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, my grace will just cover everything. Just, just go for it. Just do whatever you want. In fact, I was sharing this story today with the Smiths as they were joining. That Somebody told me one time, they said, the gospel of grace really, from a human standpoint, doesn't really get results the way that it should. Like, think about work salvation. Like, if you knew that if you sinned, like, you're going to hell. If you got caught today, you died in your sin, you're, you're in hell, regardless of what you've done with Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. Like, if you don't confess that sin before you die, you're a goner, right? That system gets results, right? It makes people be mindful and careful. But that's not what grace says. Grace says that God came and gave us salvation apart from anything that we do or anything that we law that we keep. He kept the law for us. That's the whole reason for the cross and the resurrection is Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was sinless. He kept the law when we could not. He died in our place. Our sin went on Him, His righteousness on us. And so we can walk in grace, walk in truth. We're free in Christ. And that's why our burden is not heavy and our load is light. Because we know that before God, we've been declared righteous and clean and holy. That's who we are. Even Paul, as he talked to the most dysfunctional church in Scripture, which was the church at Corinth, he calls them saints, holy one, holy, those who were selected and holy before God, the elect. Those people were holy regardless of the way they acted and the sins that they committed because their faith and trust was in Jesus and the cross. And so, back to my illustration who the person said, this gets results. Grace doesn't seem to get results. But that's a misunderstanding of grace, which that person knew. They were just saying that system seemed to work better than the grace-driven system. The grace system is that God not only commands us to live holy, but then He gives us His Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us to give us the power and the strength to live the life that He's called us to live. And kind of back like to Nicodemus, a minute ago, how that it's God's timetable, God is the one who lays it all out, but there's that human element to it that people do things and make decisions for God's purposes and His will. The same thing is true in your life if you're a believer. That God is at work, but it doesn't mean you say, grace just means that I'm going to take it easy on the beach and lay back 
with my umbrella and my drink, and I'm just going to relax and let the, the, the Holy Spirit do His work. Not at all. That, that idea of grace is foreign to Scripture. And sadly, many of us have built on a foundation of Jesus a shack that nobody would want to be anywhere near, and you're sitting there thinking the Holy Spirit is going to be the one taking out the trash of your life, and that ain't going to happen. You've got to get up and you've got to take it out through His power, through His strength, but you join Him in this work. So think about your life for a second. Is your life a shack that people look at you, and there's a foundation under there somewhere of Christ, but otherwise there's nothing attractive about your life. There's no pursuit of holiness. There's no love for Jesus. There's no pursuit after I'm going to kill sin and take care of the sin in my life, and I'm going to bring in the church body around me which is why we're here to encourage each other. Hebrews says to spur each other on, to encourage each other for love and good works. And you're not utilizing the tools that God has given you, and you're sitting here in this shack saying, I got my ticket to heaven, and it smells terrible because the trash hasn't been taken out for years. But you're saying, well, God will do His work. That's not the way Scripture says it works. His grace is a motivator. And forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is not the same as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. In fact, forgiveness means that sin does matter, but God chooses to set it aside. So here's the big takeaway. It'll be on the screen. You may want to write it down. The sin that matters even more, as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, by the way, the sin that matters even more is the deep-rooted sin that uses the law of God as a means of making oneself out to be righteous. When in fact, it is meant to shine the light of God's judgment into the dark places of the heart. Let me say that again. The sin that matters more is the deep-rooted sin that uses the law that God has given as a means to saying, look, I'm better than they are. I keep most of the commands. I'm not that bad a person. And you begin to use the law to build yourself up to think that you're righteous when you're not. Because we've all been caught in the act, have we not? And either you're in denial of that or you're comparing, as many people do, your righteousness with the guy down the street who you think is worse than you are. Or you say, I don't really need to go to church because there's so many hypocrites in church. Hello, we're all struggling with sin. We're all battling sin. And yes, there's many people in the church that should be battling it harder and more diligently. But we're all sinners falling short and needing God's grace. And so the law shines the light of God's judgment into the dark places of your heart. So there must be conviction before there's conversion. There must be that acknowledgement of God's law, and I've broken God's law because the law was meant to reveal sin. And as this woman will see that Jesus had to go to the cross to forgive her of that sin. That He goes to the cross and nails her sin to that cross for her to have forgiveness. For Jesus to forgive this woman meant that He had to die one day. The spotless Lamb of God. And today we celebrate that
that he rose from the grave proving he was who he said he was. And we are truly, we, when we place our faith in him, our only acceptable response is to live under the gracious law of Christ, which pursues holiness and love while aggressively seeking to kill the remaining sin that's still in our life. Another thing that's unique about grace is the fact that every sermon we end with our head, our hearts, and our hands. Because we're not just a per- people who want to know more intellectual information, and we're not people who just get emotional on Sunday and then walk out of here. We do hands, we do what God has called us to do. So we need information, we need truth, we need passion, and then we need action. So the head, here's the takeaway for today. All of us, like this woman, have been caught in the act of sin and stand condemned by by God's holy law. You and I are all condemned. We're all in the same boat, guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the salvation that Jesus offers is it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, Ephesians says, not of works, lest we boast and brag about our accomplishments. There's a humility that we understand that we've been called in the act. Our heart, ask God to give you the grace to recognize and repent of false religion in your heart. Do you have false religion in your heart? What I mean by false religion, you're attempting to earn your salvation. Maybe you're like that illustration I said where you think that it rests on your shoulders that if you sin and then you die, you're a goner, right? Jesus died for me, but I got, I got to make sure that I don't get caught you know, in that, that situation. And you're relying upon yourself. You're putting all the effort and focus on you, not on Jesus. That's religion, and it's wrong. Thinking that your salvation gives you a pass to live whatever way you want to live, that's religion. It's not the gospel of Jesus. And so our hands, the hands and feet, and I think this is so practical in our day and age. This story is a beautiful model of God's justice and deep compassion. This story is a beautiful model of God's justice and His deep compassion. You see these religious leaders, they had anger and rage, revenge, hatred on their minds. But I'm sorry to say that so many Christians are finding themselves in that same situation in the world they live in. That we're allowing this rage to take over our lives. And we begin to let the political landscape be more significant and impactful to our lives than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us angry with sin, but it doesn't make us angry and bitter. And we destroy our witness and we're unable to, to show people the love and compassion of Jesus because we hate the world and we want it to be what it was before. And we're angry. And we let anger define us rather than the love of Jesus Christ and the compassion and the grace. It's by grace you've been saved. It's the kindness of God, Scripture says, that leads us to repentance. And so this is a beautiful model of us living and how to be the church that God's called us to be. Will we follow Jesus? Step one, look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Place your hope, your trust, your everything in Jesus. And then allow Him to be Lord of your life, Savior and Lord of your life, to guide your life. Be humble. 
Don't judge. Don't look at other people and compare. Be in the Word. Be knowing Scripture and let Scripture be what gives you the frame of mind and, and the, the lens to live this life. Not your opinions, not your beliefs, not the later, latest Twitter post, but the Word of God. Let that be your guide as you live this life. I'm going to pray, and during this time I ask you to go ahead and ready your little communion cup. And We have open communion here for anyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We want you to join with us today. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I encourage you not to take part in communion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, and it truly is all about Jesus. And we recognize that today, many, many years later, the response of our, our community, our world, our nation that many people who normally don't go to church are in church today because they do recognize there's something significant about Jesus and his life. But I got, got to pray that they'll remember that even the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. They fear, they're fearful of his name. They're fearful they know who he is. And just our head knowledge alone is not what it takes. Help us to embrace all that Jesus is for us and all that the cross is for us and how that we find our life and eternal life in the cross, and through that exchange of your perfect life for our sinful life, our sin for your righteousness. And God, may today be the day of salvation for many who, put their, who take this communion element, who take the bread and they drink the juice, and they remember what it cost you. And God, may this be their day of salvation. In Jesus' name.